This is from the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, Be careful not to parade your good deeds before people to attract their notice. By doing this you will lose all reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give alms, do not have it trumpeted before you. This is what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to win people's admiration. I tell you, they've had their reward. But when you give alms, your left hand must not know what your right is doing. Your almsgiving must be secret. And your father who sees all that is done in secret will reward you. So there are many uh, spiritual traditions that uh, have seasons, periods of time, extended periods of time for fasting, for discipline, that have seasons like our Lent. So what is it that makes uh, our season of fasting, of abstinence, or of discipline, or of something a little stricter, a little more uh, focused. Uh, the three elements of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer is a pretty universal ways of making ourselves more God-centered, more less self-centered, more grounded, less in our fantasy. So what is it that makes Lent, uh, a Christian season of fasting, almsgiving, and, and prayer. It's the fact of Easter. It, what gives significance to us is that this is a preparation for the celebration of the Easter mysteries in a six weeks' time, and where we celebrate the risen Christ. So that changes, I think, our attitude towards the disciplines of Lent, the practices of Lent. Quite clearly, it's not about punishing ourselves. Why do we punish ourselves if Christ is risen? <coughs> the Orthodox Church reminds us of this by uh, often not saying that on, on Sundays, which is the Easter day of every week, uh, you, you don't, it's not appropriate to to fast, so you can let rip on Sundays in moderation. Um, so that's, a, and that's something that you might like to consider, I think, for some temperaments and for some people, it, it could be a good way of practicing the discipline, the asasis of Lent in a, in, in a way that protects you from the ego taking over and setting up this battle of the will against the flesh and the spirit. So for others, it's easier to just do it for the full 40 days and, uh, and, and maintain it. So the whole purpose of any discipline, of course, is that you have the freedom, the freedom <coughs> to know what you're doing and the freedom to be who you are becoming through this discipline. So, uh, Islam has, uh, has Ramadan and 
the um, uh, Buddhists have uh, monks anyway have uh, sort of the, uh, the the rains retreat. So many different traditions have periods like Lent, but what gives significance to the Christian season is the fact that it is already bathed in the light of the resurrection. Now, dramatically, we are preparing for Easter, and the more seriously we take Lent, I think the more fun we have at Easter, the more insight, the more uh, brilliantly we see the, the light of Easter, the Easter Vigil, Saturday night. There's a story uh, I, I read quite recently uh, from the Hindu tradition, which maybe gives an insight into, into what we are doing at a deeper, at more maybe contemplative level uh, in Lent, whatever exercises or practices or whatever we do for Lent. Anyway, it's the story of a, a man who's walking along the road and he meets God. And uh, he asks God, could you kindly tell me what it's all about? Can you tell me the truth of everything? I've really wanted to know and I don't meet you every day, so this is, this is the opportunity. So God says, well, actually, I, I, yes, I will tell you, but I've got a bit of a dry th throat because of all the walking. Could you get me a glass of water? So the man goes off to a, a house nearby, knocks on the door, get, get him a glass of water, and this very beautiful girl opens the door of the house. And uh, he says, do you think I, I could get a glass of water from you to give to... God, who I just met. So she said, well, of course. She said, actually, I'm just about to have a meal. Would you like to <coughs> join me for the meal? So he said, oh, that's very kind of you. Just the two of us, very nice. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, they have a meal. And 20 years later, they have six children. <laughs> and one day, this hurricane hits and uh, the man prays to God and says, please, save me, help me. And God replies, could I have my glass of water, please? <laughs> <laughs> and the meaning of the story is not that the, the man should not have uh, married the girl and had six children, but he shouldn't have forgotten to bring the glass of water to God. So it's a story in a way that reminds us of how easily we forget, how easily we become distracted. And human beings are intrinsically distracted. The desert uh, teaches them fathers and mothers of the desert who give us this way of meditation, were ordinary people. They weren't uh, clergy. They were lay people who went out into the desert to learn to pray. And they were astonished by the agitation and the distractedness of their own minds. 
And they even went so far as to say this, this is probably original sin. Our capacity to forget, be distracted, to, to jump from one thing to another without ever really focusing on the one thing necessary. This, this, is, this takes us close to the meaning of sin. Uh, the question for them is, what do we do about it? And how long does this distraction have to last? And I think for us, how chronic does it have to be? So the problem in this story was not that he got married and he became busy with six children, but that he didn't take the time that any of us can take pretty well, maybe not every day, but pretty well there are periods in life where and you could imagine situations in life where you just wouldn't be able to do it, like the days of the hurricane strikes. But for most of us, in daily life, we have the capacity to sit and remember. This isn't such a difficult thing, and I think we, we can see in children, we can remember perhaps in our own days of innocence, that we could be really present. We could remember. Maybe those days of innocence get shorter and shorter in the modern world, in modern culture, as children quickly lose their capacity for attention and are trained almost from two years old, as, long, as soon as they can hold a, an iPad, uh, they, are, uh, they learn, or they unlearn, this natural capacity we have to pay attention. And we need to see, and Lent is an opportunity for us to do that, how chronically and how unnecessarily, perhaps, we have fallen into this state of distraction. And we need then to see how it affects everything. When our minds are in this state, everything we do becomes affected by it. All our relationships, our attitude to work, our attitude to time. And we don't see this happening. It happens imperceptibly. The more distracted we become, the more anxious we become, the more disconnected we become, the more lonely we become, the more frightened we become. So we need, I think, in Lent to take a, the opportunity to reflect, to do a bit of stop-taking, spiritual awareness of how we use our time and how we affect our own minds by our behavior, by our habits. Because it does truly affect everything, personal and social, and it creates the spiritual emergency that we have entered in our time. And then, of course, we need to take action to reduce the level of distraction and to deepen the spirit of attention 
in our lives. That doesn't happen in 40 days, but it is something that we begin. And we remind ourselves that we, we can, as it were, take control again, self-control of this state and this sorry state of affairs that we, we may have fallen into. And that's the main purpose of Lent, I'd say. To slow down our rate of distraction, our skipping from one thing to another. Before we've arrived in one moment, we're always preparing for the next, leaving the next. I, I learned that, I mean, we all learn this different ways by the way we live. I learned it through uh, traveling so much over, over a good part of my life. And uh, at first, uh, you know, you, you, you see how easily traveling a lot can disrupt you and distract you and dis destabilize you. And it taught me the need for an inner stability. Since I've always achieved it, but it certainly made me aware of it. And it gave me an understanding of the great gift and grace of meditation in my life, the, the regular beat, the rhythm of meditation. <coughs> so wherever you are, or whether you're in transit or whether you've just arrived or you try to keep to these regular pulse beat moments of, of, of prayer. The heart of the rule of St. Benedict is this structuring of our time around moments of, of prayer. So I learned that, uh, as I'm sure you have learned it in other ways, how important that underlying continuity is. And how at first it seems so difficult to reconcile uh, a commitment to that regularity of prayer with, you know, the speed of life and the, uh, the uh, number of commitments and demands and expectations that you have to uh, have to meet and respond to. So I think Lent is very much about giving ourselves the, the, the permission and the space and, and pushing ourselves to take account of how we live and are there changes we want to make and how could we make those changes? That's why it's, we, we, I think we, we uh, approach Lent as a time where you, you make some changes in your routines and you try to stick to those changes. So it could be, ideally it is, I think traditionally, you, do, you give up something and then you do something extra as well. So these two things, uh, are two new little patterns that you introduce into the ordinary habitual uh, patterns of your, of your daily life. When I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, I must have been drinking tea on a regular basis, but I was quite young. Um, because I would take, I always took two teaspoons of sugar in my tea. And then I had to think <coughs> what to give up for Lent. So I thought I'd give up sugar in my tea. 
and I really <coughs> felt I was making a great sacrifice <laughs> and was making Jesus very happy <laughs> because I was, uh, you know, I really hated tea without sugar. So when Easter Sunday came, I poured in probably <laughs> maybe too many teaspoons of sugar in my tea and drank it and spat it out. <laughs> Disgusting. And I've never been able to drink tea with sugar ever since. What does it show? It shows we change. Our habits change. What we like can change. Our brains are, have plasticity. And we now know that it's not only the young who have this amazing plasticity of, of the brain, but way through in, into old age, we still have this capacity to change patterns, perceptions, and the grooves that we've got into that we think is just part of us now, well, it's too late for me to change. Apparently it's not true. At least to be open to that puts us back into a relationship to our true selves and to the ground of our being. And learning to pay attention is at the heart of this. It's not about inflicting uh, discomfort or pain upon yourself. It's about strengthening the muscle of attention, doing the exercise of attention. That's what, of course, saying the mantra is. It's a very gentle but regular exercising of this power of attention that brings the mind back into a state of flexibility, of openness, of health, and of suppleness. Attention purifies, Simone Bay said. It purifies. What does it purify us of? It purifies us of distraction, of illusion, of attachment, of the fantasies that we create when we get into the wrong kind of patterns. Attention purifies, but attention also connects us. It connects us in real time, to real time, to real things, to the reality of the people, the situations, the difficulties or the joys that we're presented with, through the feeling of connection. Attention is very much related to compassion. There was a, a story some time ago uh, of, a, of a, I think it was a, some kind of disaster or maybe a train crash or some, where there were people lying on the ground uh, in pain, in need of help, minutes after the emergency, after the accident. And then there was a picture, I don't know who took the picture, but there was a picture of somebody going around taking pictures. Taking pictures of the people on the ground. Or movies, you know, which could be put, you know, uploaded within instance, in an instant on YouTube, and then everyone hopes, I suppose, they're 
YouTube will go viral. But what a, what a terrible state of distraction that poor photographer must have been in to be able to, to be so disconnected <coughs> from the needs of the people who were there that he could stand back and take these pictures and hope that they'd give him his 15 minutes of fame. What a terrible state of inability to feel the immediate response of compassion that we instinctively feel when we should, when we, we see people in distress. Doesn't mean that you, you had the medical or other abilities to, to, to save them, but there's a difference when there's nothing you can do, at least you can sit and pay attention to the person and let them know that you're present, not to stand and try to get the best angle, the best shot. So the state of distraction disconnects us from this capacity for compassion. Attention is an act of love, it's an act of other-centeredness. And we become most human when that capacity is, is, uh, is fulfilled. Attention and compassion are inseparable. And I think today we have to remember attention is not the same as mindfulness. I'm not criticizing mindfulness. It helps a lot of people to get to the first stage of, of meditation. But if you think that that condition of mindfulness is the same as attention, you may be in for a surprise. You could be a very focused or mindful sniper. You're not exactly feeling compassion for the people you're you're aiming at. That's why in the Buddhist tradition these mindfulness exercises are designed to prepare you and support you in a lifestyle and as a direct preparation for meditation. And it's out of that deeper work of attention that we do in meditation where the attention comes off ourselves. That's where the Buddhists and Jesus clearly would say the real connection happens. In the prophet Isaiah that we, we begin Lent with in the, in the scripture readings today and in the, uh, during this, these early periods of Lent, um, he's quoted because he reminds in his prophetic way, he reminds us of what the essential practices of Lent are about. Not about just nurturing our own spiritual garden, not by keeping the attention of us on, on ourselves, not by taking selfies of ourselves spiritually, but actually to become more other-centered. Come back to me with all your heart, he says. Open your hearts. And then uh, make sure that the, the workers are fairly treated. 
that the poor are fed, that the lonely are consoled, that the suffering of others is, 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 is met with your practical care and attention. That is, that is what good practice, spiritual practice, uh, means. And it's the test of it. Does it make us more other-centered or more self-centered? In the Gospel of Matthew that we read a little extract from just now, he's, uh, Jesus speaks about interiority, going into our inner room. This is what he says. When you pray, do not imitate the hypocrites, Lent is a time where we recognize the hypocrite in ourselves. In other words, the clash of, of values or the shortfall between what our ideals and our practice. We're all, in that sense, we all have to admit we're a little hypocritical. <coughs> At least let us be aware of it. It's the unconscious hypocrites who are the dangerous ones self-righteous ones. They're really dangerous. But if we are conscious of that shortfall between the ideal that we ascribe to and the, uh, the practice of our daily lives, well, that's humility. Keeps us grounded. And then he says these hypocrites love to say their prayers, standing up in religious places and at street corners for people to see them. So they're taking a selfie of themselves through the attention that other people are giving them. Well, we translate that in our world by saying simply, we like the way we feel that we appear to others. Or we have constructed an image of ourselves that we feel we can hide behind. In other words, the ego has interfered in the practice of attention and pulled it back from becoming other-centered to making it centered on yourself again, even without your realizing it. I tell you solemnly, those people have had their reward. So you don't, you, there's no fruit out, there's no benefit from that. Just get a little momentary satisfaction, but it's, it's, it's really quite <coughs> stale and sterile. It doesn't lead to spiritual growth. But, he says, when you pray, go into your inner room, the heart, the storehouses, a good translation of the word Jesus uses. And when you have shut the door, closed the door, why do you close the door when you go into a room? Because you're going to be there for a while and because you're prepared to say, I'm going to do something in this room and I don't need the noise and distraction of, of, the, of what's going on outside. And that's going to be for a certain period of time, not just for an instant. If you've just forgotten your glasses in the other room, you don't open the door, shut the door, get your glasses, open the door and shut the door. 
you leave the door open, you come in and out. But if you're going to remain in the room for a period of time, then it's natural for you to shut the door. So this is again something that we we can interpret in the light of our experience of meditation, staying there. Mary, in the Gospel of Martha and Mary, uh, sat at the feet of the Lord and stayed there, St. Luke tells us. So it's stillness and stability in that time of interiority. And it's in that secret place that Jesus describes it. In that secret place, or the word gives us, is, 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 is the same as mystery, which also gives us the word mystical. So it's not secret in the sense that you're hiding something. It's, it's secret in the sense that you have entered into the mystery of your own being and discovered that that mystery is not a self-contained, self-centered mystery, but is in itself divine, it's in itself other-centered. And in that mystery of our own being, therefore, we find the being of God. And it's that entering into the mystery that allows us to take the attention of ourself to undo the interference of the ego, Ego just getting in there and trying to hijack it or take over the operation. It's what gets us over the vanity of the ego, wanting others to approve us. And it's what brings us to what Jesus says is uh, the unselfconsciousness of the spirit. So that what you, uh, you don't know uh, that your, your left hand uh, doesn't know what your right hand is doing. That unselfconsciousness, which is actually an expansion of consciousness. We can't predict that when we start to meditate, that we are actually going to expand in mind and heart. And at first we try to observe it, to see if it's happening, to decide whether we should continue meditating. And if we feel that it's not happening, then we'll give up the meditation and do something else. So we have to, there is a sacrifice. We have to commit before the other appears. We have to go into the mystery even before we know what the mystery is going to reveal to us. That's Sacrifice. So in Lent, this is why I think we, we give up something and we do something extra. But we don't dramatize it. And it's not intended to cause pain, but to keep you stimulated, to keep you alert, to keep us awake. So, if you give up alcohol for Lent, and after a week you don't miss it at all, then you can still stay off it, but you might give up sweets, <coughs> sweets as well. The purpose of the giving up is not to punish yourself, 
but to just give yourself that gentle little nudge or little stroke almost, rather than seeing it as sort of hitting yourself with a rod, see it as just giving yourself a little stroke that keeps you conscious, keeps you awake, keeps you alert. And whatever we do, or whatever we give up, should be healthy. It should advance health, wholeness of body, mind and spirit. I was in the Holy Land uh, not long ago, and hadn't been there for many years, and I was reminded of this shock uh, when you visit these places you've read about, that have been part of the stories of your religious upbringing, the myths, the great myths, the great stories of the Bible and the Gospels. And then when you go to the actual places where these events uh, apparently took place, uh, how small they are, how ordinary they are. What a tiny little stream the Jordan is. Armageddon is about the size of this room. You know, this is where the great cosmic battle of the end of the world is going to take place. So everything becomes suddenly uh, cast into a different set of proportions, human proportions. And that's why perhaps you also realize in how many of these stories of the Bible, the, the great figures, the heroes, are very human people, not perfect. King Solomon, you know, one of the greatest figures of the Bible, ended his days as an old fool, uh, spending too much time in his harem. And uh, King David, we know, made lots of mistakes. So the biblical uh, imagination is able to create a vast and cosmic sense of meaning through its stories and its myths, but it also keeps the human scale and the geographical scale of this tiny little country the size of New Jersey that is, <laughs> has been in a state of conflict since the beginning of history. It's very humbling to think of that as the Holy Land. And then to see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the different Christian denominations have all carved out their little niche and uh, protect it very, very carefully. We were in the place of the crucifixion. Um, a person who was showing us around our group said, Oh, don't, don't, don't speak too loudly, because that's the other side over there. And one of the monks from the other side was looking at us very suspiciously. So this is it's one of the most sacred places in uh, Christian geography. And yet we're very, just very painfully, consciously aware of the, of the, of the humanity of it, the flawed humanity of it all. And yet, I felt this time, more than last time actually, how sacred it is, even because of that, because it is so flawed. 
great events happening in small places. And the Holy Land is this small little country but is, is composed of desert, of mountains, of beautiful green valleys and hills like in Galilee, and uh, the city of Jerusalem, and the Lake of Galilee. Amazing variety of landscape, all of which ref is reflected in the Gospel story, just as it is reflected in our own lives. How many different landscapes there are in our own lives. So we should try to make Lent a holy season so that every part of our life feels as if it is holy ground, however flawed it may be. It's still holy ground. And the holiness of the land of our lives comes from being connected to the whole. And then being able to realize that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think perhaps the meaning of Lent for us, prayer, fasting, giving up something, and uh, almsgiving, generosity, real generosity, that these practices of Lent should reconnect us to our essential desire for holiness. Not the holiness of being admired, but the holiness of wholeness, of feeling connected to the whole that is greater than the sum of all the parts that we are normally fragmented into. And to reconnect to that desire for holiness at its very source. That's why we need these times of stillness to sit and stay in the moment. Because that opens up us to the spring of being itself. And we learn in Lent that we find this spring more by reduction than by addition. Giving up something or simplifying rather than by adding and complicating. And I think if we do that, even if we enter this first day of Lent with that sincere intention and see how we get on, that's all we have to do. Just take the first step, like meditation, like saying the mantra. Don't think about what am I going to be like in 40 days' time? Will I have uh, given up all the things I said I'd give up, have done all the things I said? That's not the point. The point is to be wholehearted now. And if we were wholehearted for one moment during Lent, it would be a good Lent and a holy Lent. But hopefully we'll get a few more moments uh, in the next 40 days of the season. And then I think we will rediscover as we prepare uh, for Easter the joy of, of, of Easter. And also we, have, we will have been reconnected to what easily gets 
stale or jaded or becomes simply abstract. <coughs> the joy of having our lives focused in the right direction. The joy of knowing that we have <coughs> some kind of balance and singleness of purpose in our life. Joy of being tuned in to the wavelength of the spirit. And it's that joy that if we have tasted it or re, uh, released it a little more in ourselves, then we won't be going around, as Jesus says, with gloomy faces. We will be able to inject some of that joy into uh, our world and our relationships. And we will have... Um, prepared ourselves also to enter more deeply this year into the mysteries of, of Easter. So I wish you a very happy Lent. And to set, you, to set us off on, on this journey, uh, we'll follow this ancient custom of the ashes, um, which reminds us Ashes, to ashes, dust to dust. If the Lord won't have you, the devil must. <laughs> so, so the, the, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, we're going to give the ashes to each other. Okay. So, but don't take too long about it, otherwise we'll have got to Palm Sunday before we finish. <laughs> so. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll bless the ashes now simply and then uh, we'll, we'll pass it from one person to another um, in this little bowl I'll add some water, bless the water and add it so that it becomes a kind of a mud <laughs> if it gets too dry you can ask them to put in some more water and then uh, so just put it on the person's forehead. You can make the sign of the cross, the person next to you. And you can say, for example, whatever comes to you briefly, if you'd like to say, uh, to share a, a, a blessing with them, or you could simply say, let's say, change and believe the good news, which is, the, <coughs> this is how Jesus began his teaching after his 40 days uh, in, the, in the desert. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, we could translate that equally well, if not better, as change. You can change, yes, we can all change. And believe the good news. This is from the Gospel of Tomorrow, actually. If anyone wants to follow me, let them renounce themselves and take up their cross every day and follow me. Because anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. But anyone who loses their life for my sake, that person will save it. 
What's the point then for you to win the whole world to have lost or ruined your very self? Let's just take a few, a few minutes of silence as we open ourselves and our lives, our true selves and our lives as they are to this invitation to follow where he has gone and into what he has opened up for us and to allow our lives to be healed and for our true self to be revealed. Let's uh, conclude as we say the Our Father in our own mother tongue. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For us this day our daily bread, and give us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. Okay, we're off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Good